so some questions so just uh, when you consider questions I'm very happy to to respond to what's happening for you you know sometimes it's not so easy to uh, formulate a question um, or maybe a bit too personal some of the topics so of course there is the also the group interview um, period uh, so bear in mind that when when I'm asking a question then naturally there are you know 30 people so try to if you can sort of frame your specific question in something you might think might be of general interest also that's that's a consideration could you talk more about using embodiment to deal with overwhelm so overwhelm is when you there's so much input happening into the into the jitta that it can't discharge or process them into any uh, useful sequence of, of uh, uh, responses so much is going on that you can't make a coherent response and you can't discharge because there's new input coming in so what happens is an increasing uh, uh, energy and uh, emotional input which is getting triggered with various uh, images and perceptions and as that builds up there's also the recognition of just the um, intensity of the sankara, that's the charge the general voltage is increasing so naturally with that there's a feeling of some alarm like I'm cooking over, I'm over boiling over I'm cooking up I'm losing it yeah. uh, and, <clears throat> and so and, and it's a, that effect can can be escalating because one one has you know and this is all quite quickly but it's that recognition and a sense of alarm and panic is such that it itself becomes another topic. I'm going into panic. So I'm you know, even this isn't necessarily thought, the emotion is one of panic. When I feel the panic I get panicky about panicking. <laughs> and, and and then I very feel uh, something wrong with me, I can't manage this, and what am I doing wrong, I can't practice. So that all adds to it, so that the, as one increasingly feels myself unable to, to process material, the fact of being able to pro- unable to process it becomes another topic that adds to the general accumulation of, uh, of experience. So it's something to avoid. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the points of embodiment is to is to make it that uh, one does avoid that, because mm. the embodiment acts by itself, acts as a kind of filter. Mm. Uh, in, in that, uh, it facilitates the ability to um, to process material you don't have to think about it you just feel the feeling as a feeling and you uh-huh. I'm here that's a feeling uh-huh. I'm here that's a feeling uh-huh. so you see what what 
one of the fallacies of overwhelm <clears throat> is the sense you have to deal with every feeling that comes up. You have to deal with every perception that comes up. Um, so if that's always the case, you're, you're heading for overwhelm. <laughs> um, so it's, it's you, see, you don't have to deal with everything you perceive and feel. Uh, that's important. There's an immense amount of stuff that you can perceive and feel, even just thinking. You don't have to deal with all of it. You can't deal with all of it. Uh, so, the point of, of the embodiment acts as a kind of safety valve. You just going into your centre, the ground, soles of the feet, the palms of the hands, the sense of the body, breathing out, relief in the contraction. So you come to your place of some groundedness and from there you can discern what you need to deal with, what you can deal with at this time without losing your ground, what you can deal with right now. You can't deal with all of it. That's the fallacy of the un- of overwhelm. And that's if the mind doesn't have a ground, it will tend to not be able to get things in perspective. Everything is equally important. It doesn't have the perspective because emotion doesn't do perspective. It's not what it's about. Emotion is about feeling. It doesn't do perspective. Yeah, and we need perspective. So the body locational sense gives you right here that takes you away from the the getting the impact of perceptions straight into your heart. You've got that viveka step back. Now it doesn't mean we're closing down by any means. It doesn't mean we're closing down or shrugging off or denying or whatever. It's then present. But you're just inching back. Yeah. If you can use that metaphor, just stepping back and now of all this, of all this is happening, what's the salient piece to deal with first of all? First of all, the first thing to deal with is the idea that I've got to deal with it all. That's a killer. <laughs> so let's check that one out. <laughs> well, and let's discharge that. No, you don't have to deal with it all, okay? Right. Now, what seems most important, or uh, what can I really get a clear handle on? Now, many they all may seem equally uh, have equally pow- powerful effects, but then you've got that sense of stepping back uh, and the understanding that comes with Dhamma. Life is always dukkha. <laughs> uh, you know, not to be just land about that but so <laughs> what is the bit I can actually what's the bit I can be clearest about because since you've got you know ten things that are lining up to be dealt with so well really what one can I can I you know have a maximum effect on because you want to save your energy for what you have the most capability to handle I can't deal with what she's feeling right now it disturbs me, but I, I can't deal with that directly. 
what I can deal with is my feeling of impotence and frustration let's deal with that so you see you start to uh, prioritise it doesn't mean I'll never deal with that it just means this is the first thing to deal with that's cleared then maybe we can move on so there's a process required there embodiment gives you that capacity because it gives you a safe place to stand where you're out of the firing line of, of mental psychological input now if you're in overwhelm you feel yourself cooking up frizzling uh, overblowing then, then you must um, if you want to use embodiment which I'd thoroughly recommend because it is a, definitely a, a safety valve um, and doesn't shrug things off or deny things then you want to come into any bit of your body you can <laughs> and ideally uh, the pieces that are getting activated will probably be your your chest, your heart um, your head, your throat maybe your belly it's all that area so stay out of that if you go into it then anything you go into it you will naturally be more involved with it so this is why the feet soles of the feet palms of the hands are useful and if we've been practicing establish the sense that they, this body is a connected wholeness so coming down into the soles of the feet standing soles of the feet ground can you Focus on those areas of your body, breathing out. Okay? Now, maybe you need more than that, then maybe you need to move a little, move your body a bit. Maybe you need to just use your hands slightly, fold and unfold the hands, move around. Contact touch is good, so you might sort of touch your legs or something. Now you get something else to focus on rather than this cascade of perceptions and feelings. So that's the gets you. So in other words, it's giving you a chance to get to your to your grounded place. And the grounded place is not a particular place in the body; it's any place in the body where there's that possibility to the mind to uh, settle feel steadied uh, the other th- also you can orient to uh, visual sense just look around so anything that takes you out of the firing line of all that stuff uh, and coming out of overwhelm so take a few breaths That isn't adequate. Then you need to be a little more active. You just you know, using your body, activate your body. Standing in a qigong position, for example, might just almost require your energy to shift. Um, if you can't. That all that seems still too too <laughs> uh, too remote. Then uh, take a long, slow out breath and breathe all the way out and then lock against breathing in and hold that for about 10 seconds longer than is comfortable 
and that will certainly shift your attention. <laughs> your feet probably start to forget about her and them and that, it's because I'm just about to die. <laughs> and then you can just slowly let the breath come in through the nostrils and you feel your body sort of shake because you take it in slowly. So it does it, what it does is it, it creates a physical panic system. It activates the physical panic. But the point of this physical panic is that once you start breathing in and then relax, then that physical panic, which may have been for 10 seconds, is relieved and you get this discharge. You get really flooded with a discharge experience. And that can help again to, to just nudge the mind, the emotion, the emotional mind out of its own vortex. How do we find our ground when our body is sick, in pain or dying? Well, um, I just mentioned if you can feel your body, somewhere in there there is a place of um, some stability, but it may also require um, deep patience. So, although I've talked about groundedness being something that we can enter through through the body it's not entirely bodily the body helps to provide that it's a place where the mind settles and so you can do that that's what bodies can do you can give us that place when we can't find it in our thoughts and our moods you can find it just in that sense of connection to the physical earth itself that's a given isn't it uh, but remember it is uh, physical but it's also it's, it's a sense so the sense of patience and relinquishment that is also a place where the mind stops uh, and, and drops you could say it drops it's trying to make things happen or struggling and somewhere in the mix of those the body, the body and a mental attitude. <coughs> mm. So particularly when one is dying, then this is really you use more perhaps the mental qualities, the surrender, the relinquishment. The mind finds rest perhaps in recollecting blessings of life gratitude Uh, so it can can be entered psychologically and it can be the case actually it can be actually easier to enter that when you're sick or dying because something in you does get the point it's now time to give up (laughs) you know uh, you can't, uh, it's no, no point planning the future now. There's no point wondering, you know, were you good enough now? <laughs> Which is where we're up, the mind doesn't settle because it's thinking about itself, it's time to give all that up.
How do we help someone who suffers with mental illness to find his ground, particularly when ground is scary to them? Years, many years, thank you. Well, this is kind of what companionship's about. So you find your ground and uh, speak and behave from that place. So in a way, you offer your presence rather like a, uh, an earth wire or a lightning conductor. You offer your presence to, and you take them into your presence and you listen to them, you may give them physical contact. So you, that's what you, that's your offering. Now whether it works or not, who knows? You can't do it for somebody else. You can only be a conduit. You can only be that which invites or encourages it. You can't do it for somebody else. Yeah. And depending, mental illness is a very broad uh, definition because, well, what? Which one? You know, in a way, everybody apart from Arahant is mentally ill. Um, there's different degrees of it. Uh, uh, but uh, so I don't know but if the person capable is in such a, st- a state where they can have some empathic connection to you as a, as a friend then that's a great benefit because then your groundedness um, and staying there a long time and patiently speaking from that place and inviting me you know, and sharing presence with them will be a benefit And it's, yeah, this is, we cannot do it for another person. So, that's, that's it. So, obviously, very patient. And don't, you know, don't lose your ground with despair or impotence. That doesn't do any good. Don't lose your ground thinking you're going to make it better because that won't do you any good. You must not have any results in mind. If you have any results in mind, you're not, you're not, on, your, you're not on your ground. Yeah. As soon as you have a result, you're searching for a result, then you're inching away from the ground. The ground has no result. It's just that. It's a stopping. And it may be that from that there will be results, but we don't ask for them. This mind that asks for results isn't grounded. So, as for oneself, it's the same as with another person. You want them to get better, that's yes, totally understandable, but that may not be necessary, it certainly won't be grounded. Your ground has to be, this is what I am offer, I can offer, I really wish and hope this will have an effect, but I can't ask for that. If I ask for it, I'm going to get impatient and frustrated, and then I'm going to lose it. So this is why we practice that place where there is no expectation or result. Therefore, something miraculous can happen. Physical contact helps, um, you know, touching, just negotiated contact, but 
not hasty but negotiated contact, touching the shoulders or the ankles or gently just so yeah, rather just imagine you've got a an earth a lightning rod and it's just taking the charge. So that may be helpful. When dealing with a chattering mind, is it okay to read or listen to Dhamma talks or should I always work to still and bring to present moment? So when the mind is chattering, it's nice to change the script anyway. <laughs> yes, it's the case that, um, yeah, you know, minds chatter. Uh, and depending on you know, what, what your lifestyle's about, it's, it's a chatty life. We read a lot, we think a lot, we speak a lot, all that becomes long term. And one shouldn't really, you know, make too much of a, of a big thing out of it. Um, you know, it's got to stop. That does, it's not going to help. But uh, essentially, you know, why does the mind chatter? Well, it could be that it's got some difficult things, it's trying to work out of its system. Or it could be it doesn't know, um, doesn't know where to, doesn't know, it's, the chatter kind of acts as a, as a a bed, you know, a a, a context to to dwell in. You know, it, it acts as an environment that one's become used to. The chitta's become used to having that kind of buzzy sound going on and activity. It's become um, uh, patterned or established. That's what it's familiar with. Living with that stuff is what it's familiar with. And it's got used to it. So it's strange. It doesn't... So, you know... So the aim of what we deal with, you know, I mean, when it to stop, what do you mean? So, you know, you can read things, listen to talks, and maybe that, in that instruction, you listen to talk, the chattering mind got a, you know, it's still in the same mode, it's still in the thoughtful mode, but it's perhaps receiving input that's got a different emotional tone to it that causes one to pause and reflect and slow down and take it in and turn things over. Turn things over. So you've kind of moderate, moderated the pace of that. And there are points in which you, your mind stops. You go, and, oh, that's interesting. You know, those pauses. So you can notice that effect. And, yeah, you know, one can learn things. This is um, something another person asks, how to deal with the mind that delights in doing, 
although I see so much benefit from the practice for peace, the stillest energetic movements towards busyness, distraction, enjoying pleasure from sense contact. How do you encourage me to more clearly see peace as attractive, enjoyable, desirable, etc.? Well, perhaps it isn't enjoyable. <laughs> or desirable. It desirable, what do you call me? Have it. <laughs> but it's, 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 you know, this is the nature of sankhara, patterning, uh, you could say karma patterning. That which one has become familiar with, that's what the mind tends to dwell in. And uh, it dwells in that, that milieu, that environment. And it's difficult for it to shift out without a lot of careful attention. But, you know, it's only, sometimes it's only a stress that's holding you together. And <laughs> so it's chit-chat and wayward mind without him. God, I feel, what's going on? <laughs> Two day choir. <laughs> you know, people who've lived in cities and you take them out to the country, they can't sleep at night because it's too quiet. The silence freaks them out. They've got used to particular. What's it? You know, the mind doesn't feel comfortable. So we have to be, you know, with busyness, with doingness, with chatty mind, as a particularly energetic. Uh, vibration is a, it's a fairly high, high energy, zing, 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 buzzing along. And yeah, the ideal of peace is, is a very attractive, but the reality of it means it's, 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 your chitta is not, uh, you can't make it do things. You have to provide agreeable perceptions and feelings. And so what you start to do is you, you begin to wean it with um, like a double talk. Okay, it's slower, less important, slowing you down. Uh, with reflective thought, yeah, your mind is busy, just start to consider the beings who you feel uh, concern, warmth towards, using like that. Use it to sweep around your body just like it's discerning different senses in the body. So you, you use the activity and you just try to, to steer it, rather like a, a runaway horse, you can't get to a rest immediately, but you start to put a fence around it so as it gallops around the paddock, and then maybe you, get a, you, get a, you ride on its back, it's still running around, and then maybe you get hold of a rein and just gently, can we ease back a little bit? Um, could you look at this for a while? You start to, to coax it towards um, uh, uh, perceptions that perhaps cause it to slow a little bit and ruminate and chew things over more and get the gist of it, get the feeling of it. And that's the way we do it. Busy mind. So you know, and certainly in uh, monastic training, it's very realistic. Uh, a lot of time, life is quite relatively busy. Endless things to do. 
and that's considered fine. You know, can get too much, but uh, we you have retreats and meditation, but it's gearing the mind to doing things that are serviceable rather than foolish, doing things that are generous and, and, uh, and useful rather than just diddling away playing games, learning chanting rather than just uh, reading any old magazine that comes in. So you're giving the mind something to do uh, that's to- tonally is shifting away from just uh, you know blind distraction, passion, excitement, uh, speculative, discursive thought. And so you gradually rein in, and this is years, reining it in, carefully reining it in, and uh, living as most of you do in situations where you will have to, you know, people aren't observing silence, they do expect conversation, there is thing, there are things to look at and see and talk about, it's going to be chatty. Um, and it'll be doing. Um, and part of you feels weary of all that. Uh, and then you have to, like training a wild creature, encourage it towards taking quality of experience rather than quantity taking in experience more deeply chewing it over so you're less gobbling less scampering on to the next thing <coughs> and uh, that's a training you know, so just take your time with things keep putting a handbrake on that thing that scampers onto the next thing it hasn't really digested the thing that's in its hand already that's meditation, that's where it starts it starts with altering that process so you're not skipping you take something and you digest it, even if you don't digest it completely, you digest it a little bit more fully you don't keep scampering onto the next handle it, take it in and that's that's the beginning of meditation it's just the sheer kind of uh, yoga of learning to incrementally increase the digestive process and lessen the gobbling process <laughs> lessen the input and deepen the rumination and you build it up a little bit at a time and then you also develop a particular taste what things are worthy of really ruminating and gesting, chewing over a lot of stuff is pretty tawdry really it's got no flavour to it at all, no depth it's just, it's gobble it's all junk food so you select, well something like that is worth holding in my mind and turning over you know, rather than just any old stuff so you become more discerning and that helps as well a certain you know choosiness about input there are many things that are still useful to bear in mind and put attention to but whatever you give attention to it's going to go into you do you want junk food or do you want something nourishing so then you feed it and as it gets fed on the right food gets less munchy 
and, uh, and then you get really good food then you can sit and you know chew that one over for quite a while and chew it over to the point when eventually don't even have to think it anymore you can feel the sense of it and this is what um, the subtler uh, qualities of mind are about they are non-conceptual conceptual mind is only the, really the froth on the surface there are deeper currents that are not thought has very little to do with them you sense them and you feel them and so this is the once we've begun to meditate and take things in more deeply naturally this means we begin to access the deeper processes of mind which are non-conceptual which cannot be handled by busyness they can only be taken in slowly because they're of a different mode talk about the three stages of Parami with examples Parami the word means something like perfections or furtherances to extend beyond so in, in a, this is a, uh, the listing of this is comes from time after the Buddha although clearly the Buddha exhibited many of these qualities but there's a particular list in Theravada you have ten and uh, Mahayana the six so in Theravada you have you know, if you're aware of this ten Barami it's a nice list I know somebody wrote a book about it <laughs> <laughs> Dana generosity uh, Sila uh, virtue integrity Nikama, renunciation, energy, virya, discernment, panya, kanti, resolve, uh, kanti, patience, forbearance, endurance, uh, satya, truthfulness, and um, metta, kindness, upeka, equanimity, aditana, resolution. Three stages is uh, first of all it's the recognition of which in any particular situation which particular barami <coughs> is necessary or which do you wish to determine which is useful so uh, okay we take something like truthfulness yeah maybe you know one's in doubt they want to feel things a bit fudgy or grey or not being absolutely clear uh, expressing clearly where you're at you make the determination for truthfulness so that, right, you've crystallized that and what does that mean? it means you have to be truthful to yourself so the first stage is at least accessing the root quality in yourself what is truthful? are you truthful with yourself? are you really able to acknowledge exactly how it is now? Or are you saying you should, I ought to, but maybe I don't really, yeah. Do you know what's truthful in yourself now? So at least you crystallize the quality, you potentize that. That itself is helpful. <coughs> Having established that, this is what's happening now, 
this is where I am now, this is how I feel about things now, then the second stage is when you start to meet that which doesn't, which doesn't want you to be truthful, wants you to be polite or convenient or sort of tell half the truth because it's not too comfortable, it doesn't make you look very good, where you get the fudgy quality. <laughs> so then, you, you know, you, your barometer has to meet this place where it starts to get challenged, where perhaps a bit of self-image gets challenged, or things aren't so convenient, or things aren't so familiar, or you're not quite certain of what the result's going to be, so you meet this wobble. Uh, and then you keep working with that, so you keep holding that parami against this effect, and you have to struggle with it a little bit, and then as you come through, you've perfected it, you have arrived at uh, a resolution. Of truthfulness. Here we had a question about um, in your book, Rude Awakenings, you describe one aspect of your practice as that of constant patience. Could you explain this? Well, so you determine patience. <coughs> Every time you determine the barami, you more or less throw down the gauntlet because uh, Mara's going to come with some, throw some stuff your way to challenge that. <laughs> So truthfulness is like, yeah. Did you like the sweater I knitted you? <laughs> ah, I really appreciated the effort you made. <laughs> uh, I'm really touched by that. That's true. I really appreciate the effort you made. I'm really touched by that. Did you like the sweater I knitted you? <laughs> I like that aspect of it really a lot. <laughs> But you know, orange and orange and blue checks. <laughs> uh, you know, when I was uh, sixteen, I, I I really liked that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, this time, this doesn't really work for me. <laughs> Truthful, and then uh, you bear with that. But maybe you're surprised. Yeah, that's. Uh, Person's eyes. Yeah, I wondered. I wondered if it was going to work. Okay, well, anyway, you know. So, you don't know. But uh, the more you offer the gift of truth in us, even though sometimes it's a bit uncomfortable, person knows you, gets to realize, you know, she's going to tell the truth. Uh, I can rely upon this person. She's not going to take the easy way out. I feel a deep sense of trust and this is someone I regard as definitely strong support. I'm going to get clear feedback and I can trust what she says. So the long-term results, you get a sense of uh, reliability and patience. Because, um, you know, patience means, uh, you know, you have to... um, Bear with and bear and be available for and bear with different kinds of feeling: pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling, um, unpleasant feeling. 
unpleasant feeling can come from a number of places, physical places, but also psychological places. And you recognize um, there's a lot of potential for unpleasant feeling. Uh, not getting what you want, uh, not getting things done on time, having to be with what you dislike, uh, patience. So patience is a tremendous, uh, uh, tremendous practice. So it's it's uh, there's in. Um, the Avada Patimoka, one of the key statements the Buddha made to the Arahants is almost like this is the determining feature of, of Buddhist practice. So this is our this is our common uh, theme. So these Arahants who are really alliance so is just saying, you know, these are the standards. And so simple dwelling, um, place to live, uh, uplifting the good, and then he says Patience is the supreme intense practice. It's the highest practice. And uh, it's also in one of the chants it said, through patience the Buddha defeated the host of Mara. So this is big time stuff. Patience because the sensory world Entices, doesn't fulfill. You wish something, you wish it would go away, but it doesn't. It keeps nagging. So you be patient with it. Yeah. Mm. Patient with the body. You know, it gets tired, it gets sick, it hurts. Patient with it. Patient with the mind, it chatters and whinges. Be patient with it. Patient with the emotions, the desires and wanting. And patient with it. Patient with other people, with what they're bringing in. And they can't possibly know me, what's happening for me now. It's impossible. So clearly, it's going to be, I have to be patient with them till we can actually get it together because we're not going to be immediately in alignment so we have to be patient with that okay yes, yes, but yes, yes so we can arrange to how we're going to meet that takes patience I want something to happen be patient because it's not going to happen immediately I want something to stop happening be patient because it's not going to stop happening immediately So that's so you uh, just use the word and you'll see the benefits of it. Patience means there's no timeline, there's no weak patience, I'll hang on for five minutes, I'll bear with it for ten minutes, I'll put up with it for a while. That's weak patience. True patience is 
as long as it is there, I'll be there. <laughs> There's no time limit. Forget the time boundary. This may seem like uh, an invitation to to uh, uh, torment, but actually the beauty of it is when the when you really get that, then something you stops resisting stops hankering, stops manipulating, something you gives up <laughs> and then there's no problem. No problem. Sorry. Because mental feeling is based upon resisting, opposing something and favoring something. Now if we don't resist, there's no disagreeable feeling, mentally. If we don't favor something, there's no sense of, well if that wasn't, I could have that. That's unpleasant, there's none of that. So it's just, this is it. You're not favoring an alternative. You're not seeking something else there. That experience of frustration, that dissolves. So, you're really patient, that's, that's how it does defeat Mara. Because if you're really patient, there's no favoring, there's no opposing, there's no choosing, there's no alternative, there's no sense of what it should be. Therefore, the way it is, is exactly right. And it changes, and that's that's why it's a liberating parameter. Yeah. India is great for that because it just knows exactly every every feature of that place is designed. <laughs> dig, find a nerve somewhere, dig into it. <laughs> Every train will be late, for sure. <laughs> Everything will take longer. Everything will go crazy. Go to a hotel, switch a tap, there's no water going to come out. They just put a tap there so that you can have that experience of frustration again. The light switches on the wall just to remind you that it's not going to work. <laughs> wasn't there you wouldn't have that possibility of frustration so you would stick one there so you can have that <laughs> so you think, oh, it doesn't matter it's okay <laughs> and uh, it's a very interesting <laughs> my experience of it anyway but it's uh, <laughs> just the amount of impingement and the lack of ba- lack of boundary, you know, lack of boundary. My experience, anyway. I guess you know, looking like this and being like this, people just walk right up and say, "What are you going? What are you doing? What's happening to you?" 
I'm going to ask you this question, but <laughs> straight in. <laughs> or just stand and look at you. <laughs> you know, two feet away, just stand looking at you. And that's, that's... <laughs> so you just... So that's uh, great practice. And it does make you realise, it makes you realise so much in the West we've got the ability to, you know, tweak something, push a, push a button, switch a knob, change the heat, shut the door, uh, make things, you know, we can keep changing everything all the time <laughs> to make it comfortable. And that makes us extremely fidgety and impatient. And though, you know, it's on the sensory level that's nice and great and wonderful and so forth. And yet, you know, the, uh, the result is we don't have much patience at all. We don't have much patience at all. You don't, don't know what it is. You notice that, you, you know, typically in India you see there's some, some count, counter in a shop or a, or a bank or a post office or a railway station, there's some Westerner blowing up. Is <laughs> 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 an India person see it looking like? Somebody was telling me they went through, I think they went through customs recently in India. There's a sign saying, it says this little sign, We are not slow, you are impatient. Did you meet Ajahn Chah? <laughs> yes. What was your impression as a human being? Well, pretty wonderful. Enormous amount of uh, space. Seemed like he was a fairly small person physically, but uh, that wasn't the impression one had. It was like a strange double take because you see someone who's physically you know, about five foot four or something, not really big at all. But or like this person had an aircraft hanger inside. You know, <laughs> difficult to say how you get that. And energetically, you, you pick up this sense of something vast there on an energetic level. And uh, just witnessing him um, where, where, well, you know, it wasn't really belong, but certainly I saw him in England, which you'd think he'd be kind of out of his normal uh, situation. He'd be trying to check things out, or caught off guard, totally confident, never off guard, always on the ball. Couldn't speak the language, completely comfortable, at ease, looked like he was just cruising along. And that was from the moment he landed in Heathrow, walked through customs, he'd come walking through like, this is his place. Hi <laughs> <laughs> everybody. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, living in London, you know, staying in London, which should 
you know, forest monk, newborn, never been outside Thailand. You think you might be a little bit phased by it. You know, and of course, customs are completely different. In Thailand, you imagine like him, a lot of space, people really back off, give a lot of space. They don't do that in England. It's a little funny little guy with a rope, he's in a bus and he just squashes up against him. He's just... <laughs> so very, very uh, at ease and comfortable and uh, uh, just on the ball all the time. But also mercurial. Go from being, uh, by and large, his manifestation was of, of great warmth, comfort, and warmth, and humour. That was it. I think particularly, you know, in that situation, he would feel that was the most appropriate. Just a big ability to charm and, and make people want to come close and feel comfortable and happy. Enormous capacity for that. Even though, again, you couldn't speak the language. So, just remember one incident, particularly when I think one of the Thai women, she had a friend who was was an Englishman, who was a lawyer, and she wanted him to come and see Ajahn Chah. And I don't know what happened, but I think within. 15 half minutes, half an hour, this fellow's head was in Ajahn Chah's lap. Ajahn Chah was stroking his head. <laughs> so, that enormous capacity for just made you feel like you know, must have known him for 10 years. And so, so ease, making you feel so much ease and loved. Huge metta field that uh, you didn't need you hardly you didn't really need a lot of words for it and he could do that he could kind of just the sounds his mates his voice would just sound uh, warm and bubbly and enthusiastic and comfortable so he had that capacity but also very um, deep you know he, people would ask him a question you'd hear this question fly go through the air and it would land you wait for it to land somewhere to get it to land anywhere, it just flew through the air as he's sitting there. And then he would talk to the person. So he'd ask a question and he'd say, oh, you know, it's just that and this and that. You know, thinking a lot isn't very good for you. <laughs> you know, something like that. Generally, a lot more funny than that, a lot more witty. So he'd say something to answer, directed to the person rather than necessarily answer the question. Or in some of them were quite enigmatic responses, thinking, what's that about? But the person knew there was some, you know, kind of nuanced phrase that seemed to have meaning in it. But he could also be very sharp, you know, like, you know, tiny little thing he'd point out. Uh, the monks were more people who knew him once they got comfortable then he'd start to put the, <laughs> the screws on him in a way 
point, you know, you come walking in and, you know, you came rushing in too fast and you kind of point that out. Well, you're in a hurry, are you? Go, well, you're running a bit with the cow. <laughs> Oops. Uh, you know, or something like that. And it's essentially, I don't think I saw him, and so I stayed with him, he was, so there when he was in Britain together, he was, Mahasi Sayadaw was there, and um, Carlo Rinpoche and these other people. I think, I didn't see, I think he did a number on everybody except, I think, well, there was a number. I mean, he had some way of just kind of engaging with them all in, in a way that just sort of, where are you at? You know, it's like minor challenge, you could say. Not in an aggressive way, just tweaking. I think the only person, I think he called Rinpoche, he kind of left him alone for some reason or another. And uh, Song Sir, the Zen master, Chinese, Korean Zen master, he had a bit of a kind of playful dharma combat with him. So, it was all playful, nothing aggressive, just kind of teasing, playing things around. So he was able seemingly to enter different people at their particular, where they were at, he would kind of pick that up and go into their, into their concern or their language or their style or where they were coming from. <coughs> so immensely flexible and a huge amount of energy you just start you know you see start receiving guests maybe five o'clock midnight still be going just turning it out you know people be falling asleep leaving there's anybody who's there still keep going <laughs> until you know either the junior monk would start trying to tug him out please look for come and take a rest no what's the matter with you you tired <laughs> translator will burn out you know so they get another translation, the first translator of Burnout. Say, oh, these guys aren't worth much, are they? What's the matter with you? Get another one in, and they just keep going. They know it's out of energy. And, uh, you know, he made it all seem so, so possible and, and really enjoyable. <laughs> what well, Paul was, not, was, not, was certainly not enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, this was the whole um, watchword of it was comfy, patient, patient endurance. That was that was the watchword of it, and they meant it. <laughs> yeah. Not that. Well, it was kind of like you could say Zen practice, not so much verbal, but situational. You know, go and sweep the yard with the broom, but there's only two, two uh, twigs in this broom. Go sweep the yard with the broom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have the meal. The meal turns up. Oh, good. Have the meal. Just about to eat the meal. Imagine Char starts giving a double talk. <laughs> 45 minutes, you're sitting there looking at your food. <laughs> and so on. Innumerable. So that was him. Or some of him, and of course, people who live with him just give story after story. But there, you know, for me, really to get back to that, that that essentially was 
really uh, mainstay of, uh, of, of the practice and Kanti Paramang, uh, sorry, patience is the supreme. Uh, but of course none of this works without resolution. So you make a resolution and, you know, so, so you resolve renunciation. I'm not going to have any magazines for a month. You know. And then you keep it. As soon as you resolved it, pretty soon you realize why you do need to read the magazine. <laughs> So then, but you made the resolution, and if it's going to be uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable. But you've made the resolution because it's bound to be uncomfortable. If it isn't uncomfortable, it's not working. It should get into your comfort zones and push you and stretch you, and then you're going to come through bigger. It's not meant to make life miserable. It's meant to open you out to make you more greater capacity to 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 bear with and to be present with conditions as they change. That's the whole point of it. Until we develop Parami, then, you know, basically disagreeable feelings got you on the hop. You keep moving away from it. Boredom gets you on the hop. Yeah. Restlessness gets you on the hop. Having to be with trivial things gets you frustrating and itchy. So, patience and resolution you hold your ground, you realize in this, in this, you can still find your ground. That's it. So let's take a little uh, break for a couple of minutes and then continue our practice in silence. Andamayang Dhammakataya Sadhukaram Dhammasay Sadhu Sadhu